you may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. So that is where we are, and we enter into day four on creation. This is God Creates the Earth, part two, and uh, we're going to see some phenomenal things today. So as we do, open up your Bibles and find your way to Genesis chapter one, verse 14, and while you're turning there, let me pray. Genesis 1, 14. Lord, we open your word right now, and Lord, we pause to bow in reverence to you. We close our eyes, we bow our heads because you are holy and mighty and worthy of all reverence. And Lord, we come to your word with reverence. We know it is not like any other book. We know that, Lord, it is spiritual, it is living, it is active, it is powerful, and it has the ability not only for us to read it, but for it to read us. And to reveal things about us to ourselves and to reveal things about you to ourselves. And Lord, it's for that purpose that we've gathered today. We want to know you. And so Lord, would you speak to us? And would you speak uh, by your spirit to allow our ears to hear, allow our heart to understand the marvelous mysteries that you have put in your word? We come to you now, Jesus, through all the work that you have done on the cross to bring us to yourself, to forgive us of our sins, that we might know you. And so, Lord, help us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Genesis 1.14. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. And let's read. Uh, Follow along as I read. Then God said, that's Elohim, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, God said... Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. God is saying, let there be lights in the universe, in the sky, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for seasons, excuse me, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. If you have a pen, I would like you to underline in your Bible these words, let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. Underline that. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But it's important. I want you to underline it. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Uh, God's design, incredibly beautiful. Uh, He's talking about the sun and the moon here. And don't you just marvel at the absolute artistic beauty of the sun and the moon? I mean, to walk in the cool of the night 
with your loved one by your side underneath the full moon. Love is in the air, right? Just like amazing, right? It's romantic. And I love how uh, brilliant God's design is, right? Like I hate in the middle of the night when someone comes in and you, you know, turns the lights on. And you're like, man, that's so bright, right? Don't you just marvel at how the sun rises in the morning? You get up early. It's still dark outside. And what do you see God doing? Oh, he brings this dawn. Sun just, sky gets lighter and lighter very slowly. The hues are just gorgeous. The brilliant colors. Oh my gosh, the pinks, the hues, just stunningly beautiful. And you go, God, what a great way to start the day. And then gradually it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Again, same thing at the end of the day, right? Uh, sun begins to go down. You're working. You're trying to get all your stuff done. And then the sun goes down. Unfortunately, it doesn't get dark like that. No, no, no. Even after the sun sets, you have this time called twilight, right? Or dusk. And you still have light before. So you get your trash cans brought in and you get your stuff, whatever you need to get the dog and make sure the dog's inside before it gets dark, right? And brilliant design, just marvelous. Uh, his handiwork, his beauty, his artistic prowess in creation. I want you to see here that on day four, uh, God did not create the sun and the moon here. The sun and the moon were created on what day? Day one. God spoke the entire universe into existence. Here on day four, God does something interesting. He places the sun and the moon and the planets into position to give us our 24-hour day and night and to give us our 365-year year and our seasons and everything else. Uh, pretty interesting how he does it. Look at these words. Look at the design of Scripture. Look at verse 16. Then God made two great lights, the great to rule the day. I want you to circle that word may, made, excuse me, that word in Hebrew is asaw. A different word from bara. The word bara is a Hebrew word that means to create out of nothing. It is used 50, 55 times in the Bible. All 55 times the verb bara is only used with the subject as God. Because only God can create out of nothing. If I am going to create something, uh, say that we looked at this uh, on week one. Uh, if I was going to create this pulpit, for example, I would get some wood from a tree and I would make it. I would plane it. I would sand it. I would shape it. I would smooth it. I would stain it. And I would make it into this. That would be the Hebrew word asaw. I didn't bar anything. I didn't create out of nothing anything. I changed the shape of something into something else. That word is not bara. That word is a saw. And here on day four in creation, God doesn't use the word bara. He says, God a saw. He made, he put these things in order. The sun and the moon spoke into existence on day one and now God fashions them in place to do something very interesting uh, look what the, the uh, 
Verse 14, I had you underline. He places them in position to do something. It says to be for a sign, for a seasons, and for days, and for years. I want you to consider this. At the time of this writing, Genesis 1, God goes way, way out on a proverbial limb here. And he makes a scientific statement. The sun and the moon are for signs, seasons, days, and years. That's a scientific statement. And in order for God's word to be true, for it to be accurate, the sun and the moon would have to provide these four things, signs, seasons, days, and years, or God's word would be in error. It would not be divinely inspired. It would be wrong. And so let's look at those things. Do, do the sun and the moon uh, actually provide these four distinct functions? Let's take them one at a time. The first one is signs. What does that mean? Well, the signs uh, are exactly what the Bible says. Uh, in Jewish culture, uh, the the calendar was the lunar calendar. It, the months were lunar. Uh, the years were solar. Uh, and each month began with a full moon. And on that full moon, you would get together and you would go take the whole family and you would go and worship God. You would take the day off. You would have a big feast. You would do no work. You would just spend time with family. And you would have a day of rest on the first Sabbath after a full moon. I love God's ways, by the way. Did you know God is really into time off? And really into relaxing? And really into barbecues? And really into families being together? And if you are doing those things, you are in the center of God's will if you're doing them to the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, you're in the center of God's will. God, we, we would work ourselves to death, right? And God says, hey, I want you to take time. And this moon will be a reminder that this new month is coming and to take time and to enjoy. Just take some time off and enjoy family. This is the way God designed it. Uh, you're, you're to abstain from all work and you're to celebrate your family, have a nice barbecue. And uh, here's uh, in the Bible where Second Chronicles mentions this. Uh, there's other places also. Let me hear you read this as a unified voice. Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, according to the commandment of Moses, for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts. Uh, every Sabbath you were to do this, every new moon you were to do this, and the three appointed yearly feasts. What were those? Well, it was Passover, right? That was one of the, the feasts. That's the one that Jesus died on. It was the Feast of Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. That was the one Jesus gave the Holy Spirit on. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. That looks forward to Jesus' second coming when he comes to dwell with us for a thousand years. God's people dwelling with God. Those were three required feasts. Uh, but my point in bringing this verse to you was that here are the new moons. These were signs for Israel of times to gather. In addition to the new moon of the new month, what was the time to gather? There was also special signs in the sky. There was the blood moon, which was a sign of 
a lunar eclipse, the Earth blocking the sunlight going to the sun, giving it that big red color, and uh, that would be a sign. And there are also solar eclipses where the, uh, the Earth... The moon blocks the, the sunshine on the earth, and those are signs as well. So we see the first one being completed, uh, the earth and the moon being signs on the earth. How about the second one, uh, being seasons on the earth? I find this absolutely astonishing that the Bible would say these things in Genesis 1. We now know that the earth's axis, you know, the earth isn't straight up and down, right? We know this, right? It's at an axis, right? Uh, it's at 23 and a half degrees axis. It's a precise axis. It doesn't change. It's at 23 and a half degrees. Slight variation over a long, long period of time, but it's, it wobbles just a time. But for all practical purposes, it doesn't change at all. Uh, and it's astonishing that um, we now know that this Earth's axis is the main cause for our four seasons. Uh, really, really cool. Uh, bringing you back to uh, your early college days or high school days, take a look at this chart on the screen. Uh, here's how it works, right? The Earth is at a 23 and a half degree axis. And in the norm northern hemisphere... Uh, when the axis is pointed away from the sun, that's winter. And in the southern hemisphere, when it's pointed towards the sun, at the same time, that's summer. So on the northern hemisphere, it's winter. On the summer, excuse me, on the southern hemisphere, it's summer. Six months later, now the northern hemisphere is in summer as it points towards the sun and the southern hemisphere is in winter as it points away from the sun. What do we learn? Yeah, sure enough, it gives us the four seasons. Not only does it cause summer than the northern hemisphere when it's pointing towards the sun because it's closer to the sun, uh, but even more importantly, uh, it faces the sun more so we get more of the direct rays of the sun. And it heats up the, the earth more because of the direct rays of the sun as it faces the earth. The reason we have polar caps on the uh, north and south poles are because the, the angle of the sun's rays only kind of glance off the earth there, where on the, uh, on the equator they hit head on, right? And so a lot more warmth there. So uh, here we see, sure enough, oh my goodness, uh, these four different sun, uh, seasons that we have uh, bring the, the, excuse me, the earth's axis brings these different seasons. If the earth had no tilt, no, I can't even talk. If the earth had no tilt, guess what we would have? No seasons. And every single day would be the same temperature. And our daylight time would be the same every single day. How monotonous would that be? Do you not love the long days of summer when it doesn't get dark till 8 o'clock at night and you can be at the beach at 7 o'clock and you're still surfing? No problem, right? So cool. Uh, 
But what happens? Uh, yeah, those long days, uh, suddenly now your work schedule changes and you're working way too late in the night because of the long days. And, and then God changes it and it starts getting dark, dark at five o'clock. And you're like, oh man, I got to go home earlier, right? And just great. I love the the variation in the seasons. Uh, I love the springtime air that goes, ah, fresh. It's a, just the season, right? Spring's coming, awesome. And you enter into spring and you go, oh man, I can't wait for summer, right? And then summer gets here and you start sweating and you go, man, I can't wait for it to cool down, <laughs> right? And then fall comes and you see all the beautiful fall colors and you go, oh, winter's coming. And then winter comes and you go skiing and, right? Oh, no. And just beautiful, the variety that God has made in all this. And uh, uh, just really cool. And all of that comes from the Earth's tilt, its axis at 23 and a half degrees. Uh, by the way, not all planets have a good tilt. The Earth just happens to be at the perfect tilt. Not all planets get a good tilt. Some have a really bad tilt. Venus, by the way, has very little tilt. Venus is at 177.3 degrees, which is straight up and down, and there's no change of seasons whatsoever on Venus. Uranus really has a bad tilt. It's at 97 degrees, and it has extreme seasons. It's like this, spinning this way as it orbits this way around the sun. And it has just, if, if we had a tilt like that, we would burn up in the summer and freeze to death in the winter, and we wouldn't be able to exist. It just so happens the Earth happens to have the perfect tilt of 23 and a half degrees that gives us our perfect seasons and one more Goldilocks zone thing that we're talking about of this earth being finely tuned, this privileged planet. We looked at several Goldilocks zones in our previous talks. It's astonishing. And there's more that uh, we don't even have time to go into. So uh, God's design uh, the Earth's 33 and a half degree axis provides our wonderful seasonal changes, you know, the cool winters, all the stuff, and it's just joyous. And you say, okay, great, but what does all this have to do with the sun and moon that we're reading about? Well, it turns out quite a lot, quite a lot. Uh, we've learned, as science has developed, that in order for a planet to have life, it not only needs large bodies of water, like only the earth has, we looked at last week, right? 70 something, 71% of the earth covered with water. Not only does it need large bodies of water for, for uh, carbon-based life to, to thrive, do you know what else it needs? It needs a very large moon. And it just so happens that the earth has a very large moon. Did you know that the moon is one-fourth the size of the earth? That is huge. It is actually 27% the size of the earth, to be exact. Of all the planets, earth has the biggest moon per size ratio. No other planet has a, a moon to scale as large as the Earth does. Uh, much larger ratio than any other planets and their moons. The moon is so big that its powerful gravitational pull is what stabilizes the Earth's 
23 and a half degree axis. Without the giant moon and that gravitational pull, the earth has so much land mass at the top, it would wobble on its axis and would not be able to maintain that 23 and a half degree angle. It is the moon that allows the earth to stay at that perfect axis, which means exactly what the Bible says that here, uh, the sun and the moon are doing exactly what Genesis 1.14 says. Let them be for signs and let them be for seasons. Imagine that. Uh, uh, how about days and years? Well, these are a little more obvious. Days, we know what that is, right? The earth spins out on its axis. One rotation in, in 24 hours. Uh, let's look at that just a little bit. Uh, one rotation means that the earth has to be spinning at quite a speed. Did you know that on the equator, you're spinning at 1,040 miles per hour? You're doing quite a lot. You're moving, baby, right now. I mean, you're just moving, right? 1,040 miles per hour, it spins at the equator. Uh, this, of course, gives us our 24-hour day. It spins one time, uh, and we get the side facing the sun and the side facing away from the sun, giving us our day and night, uh, 24 hours. Uh, it is incredibly precise. Its speed does not speed up or slow down at all. It is so precise that it's not even actually 24 hours. It is 23 hours, 56 minutes, and check this out. 4.09053 seconds every single day. Did you catch that? 4.09053 seconds every single day exactly. We have atomic clocks that measure this. And the Earth's spin is so perfectly consistent at 1,040 miles per hour that the rotation speed is so precise, it takes exactly 86,164.09053 seconds every single day. Let me put it in other words. In other words, it is so precise that over a thousand year period, the Earth's speed will deviate less than 23 milliseconds combined over a thousand year period. It is that precise. Let me say it this way. It would take 50,000 years combined in order for the Earth to change one second in its rotation in a day combined. All that to say, that is one pretty accurate clock. And God gave it for signs, for seasons, and for time. Wow. Wow. Just amazing, right? Just amazing for days, for years. Just amazing. Uh, Hard to, hard to even fathom. Uh, some interesting things also. It just turns out that a 1,040 miles per hour spin, once again, is the Goldilocks zone. Not too fast, not too slow. 
Some planets spin much faster. Jupiter, for example, has a 10-hour day. In other words, its planet spins faster and it does one full rotation in 10 hours. The consequence of that is Jupiter has wind speeds on average of 100 to 200 miles per hour on the face of Jupiter every day because it's spinning so fast. The planet's rotation affects the wind speed of the planet. Our planet just happens to be perfectly at 1,040 miles per hour, which gives you a nice tiny little breeze as you walk outside. Just so happens, right? Amazing. Uh, so we've looked at uh, signs, season, days. How about years? Well, we know that uh, the earth is not only spinning perfectly on its axis at 23 and a half degrees, spinning at 1,040 miles per hour. There's something else happening. What is it doing? It's orbiting around the sun, right? And it orbits at a blistering pace of 67,000 miles per hour as it travels the circuit around the sun. So baby, you are really moving. You are doing 67,000 miles an hour as you travel around the, the sun. You're also doing 1,040 miles an hour as you spin on the axis. No wonder we're tired at the end of the day, right? Uh, that's a lot of movement. Uh, and uh, here the earth travels on this circuit, and it is so precise. It is so precise that it is like clockwork. You can wind it back 2,000 years and know the position of the earth and the moon to the exact, exact position at any hour of the day 2,000 years back. Its circuit is so precise. Just remarkable to ponder. Um, and so uh, here we have the earth going around the sun at 365.242 days. And it's how we measure our year. And so it turns out Genesis 1.14 is exactly correct scientifically. God said, let me put these things and put them in order so that it would provide signs, seasons, days, and years. And that is exactly as it happens. What a quinky dink. Now consider this. We did not know any of these things until millennia, thousands and thousands of years after Genesis was written. We didn't know any of this. Science did not discover that the sun and the moon were the cause of our sign, season, days, and years until 150 BC. There was a Greek astronomer Name Hipparchus. He was from Nicaea. Uh, he was a, a, a brilliant astronomer and a mathematician. He is considered the greatest ancient astronomer of all time. He is also the founder of trigonometry. And he was the one who discovered uh, that the sun and the moon and uh, the earth's axis and all this do the signs, seasons, days, and years. And he discovered it several millennia after Genesis 1. He could have found out a lot sooner if he would have just read Genesis 1.14, right? He would have known all these things. And uh, so here we see just the miraculous design of, of God's Bible. Um, now, what's interesting to ponder and to think about is that most ancient cultures, what did they do to the sun and the moon? 
they worship them. Yeah, virtually all ancient cultures worshipped the sun and the moon as God. In Egypt, uh, they worshipped the sun as raw. They thought the raw God, they thought the sun was raw. And here's a picture of him for you. Here he is on the left, the Egyptian sun god Ra. That's him there. He's got his hot babe, of course. Can't be a god without a hot babe. And uh, so that's the Egyptian sun god Ra. And then the moon god was uh, Khonsu. And uh, Khonsu was the moon god. And they worshiped the sun and the moon. Uh, Long before that, the Babylonians, they worshipped Shamash as the sun god and the moon god, interestingly enough, for the Babylonians, do you know what the name of the moon god was? Sin. Uh, they didn't even know that's what they were doing, but yeah, it was, it was sin. <laughs> and uh, here what we find... Uh, uh, so common in human nature that all of uh, humanity through the course of the millennia have been prone to just worship uh, sun and moon gods. And the God of the Bible, however, reveals that the sun and the moon and the stars are not gods at all. They're simply created objects, inanimate created objects made specifically to serve you to give you days and seasons and times and years and uh, uh, just God's design right furthermore God said do not worship them as gods and isn't it so interesting that even today we still like to worship the creation more than the creator God said, don't do that. We don't worship raw today, but we still worship nature. And if you walk down Carlsbad Village Drive, you'll see little furry friends on leashes that we worship. <laughs> and we worship Mother Earth. And I'm fine if you want to call her Mother Earth, but that's just an uh, idiom. Uh, she's not your mama. And she doesn't know you. Uh, it's an impersonal thing, right? It's just a created, the sun, they're just created objects sent to worship you. It's going to be sent to serve you. And God says, don't worship them. Look at how he said it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, let me hear you read this in a unified voice. When you look up into the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the forces of heaven. Do not be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Uh, worship the creator and not the creation. Let me say it again. Worship the creator and not the creation. We are so prone to worship the whales and the seals and the dogs and everything else. And we are missing the point. Now, we should be good stewards of what God give, has given us. No question. But the worship goes to God. And uh, the God of the Bible, uh, all the way from the most ancient of cultures, uh, instructed us not to do what all the cultures have done. Uh, so now, we made it through day four. Let's jump into day five. We're just cooking with gas, man. Look at this. Uh, verse 20. 
Uh, we're going to look at day five here. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. And boy, do they. An abundance of living creatures. You know what I absolutely love to do? I love to go snorkeling in Maui. And you get that cheap little $10 mask and you put it on your head and you stick your face in the water and it's like you're teleported into a whole new world. And you are. And what do you see when you put your head under there? Oh my gosh. The brilliant colors. The, just the artistic design. The coral reefs. The diversity of marine life. It is staggering. There are more species of marine life than we have ever even categorized. There is more unknown species than we can even dream of. We know more, as we talked about last week, we know more about the moon than we do the depths of the oceans and the life that's in there. And it is all spectacular. And I think about this. Uh, how much of all that can you see when you don't have a mask on? It's hard, right? It's blurry, right? You can't see it. God created all that with all of its beauty, and we couldn't even see it until we finally invented glass. Too. I mean, it's just like remarkable, right? He knew one day we'd go, wow, the beauty of his creation. And look at this. God said, let the waters abound with an abundance. Two uh, superlatives there to, to just talk about the glory. Abound with abundance of living creatures. And boy, do they. And let the birds fly above across the, the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures. I want you to circle that word created. It is the word what? Bara. Second time it's used here in the Bible. All the other times it's been one time created and then a saw. He's been making everything. Here, once again, he creates out of nothing. Uh, and we'll look at this more in just a minute. Uh, but circle it. He bore out of nothing the great sea creatures. And every living thing that moves was borrowed, right? Created out of nothing. With which the waters abound according to their kind. We're going to learn next week that something's not right here. Uh, because bara means to create out of nothing. We're going to learn next week in chapter 2 that God created all the creatures from the dust of the ground. That would be a saw, not bara. So what does he mean? He borrowed all the creatures here, created out of nothing. Hold that thought. And if I forget, remind me. We're, we're going to come back to it. Uh, look at this. And every living thing that moves... Which, with which the water abounds. And then look at this. Underline these words. According to their kind. And every, wing, excuse me, every winged bird. Say it with me. According to its kind. Underline that. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. Saying be fruitful. And multiply. Fill the waters in the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And boy, do they. God gave them the creative ability to reproduce according to their kind. And they re reproduce exponentially. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. 
Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. There it is again. Cattle and creeping things and the beast of the field, each according to its kind. Very interesting. This, this phrase being repeated over and over and over from a God who never repeats himself. From a God who is so diverse, he makes all kinds of life very different from each other. From Jesus, who does everything a different way each time. Who just, But here, for whatever reason, repeating this phrase over and over the exact same way according to its kind. And so God made, verse 25, the beast of the earth according to its kind and cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind and God saw that it was good. It was good. This marvelous creation. Do you not just love looking at all of it? I marvel at how astonishing God's creation is. The diversity of it. I go to the beach with my wife and I go for a walk along the beach. And I love watching the pelicans. Have you seen them? Uh, they're, they're flying right along the ridge line of the, of the cliff. You know, the... Uh, the wind is blowing off the ocean and it hits the cliff and it bounces off the cliff and it sh shoots up and the pelicans just soar the ridge line of the cliff. They don't flap their wings. They look almost prehistoric, don't they? They have this massive wingspan. And what's so funny is you see them land and they're like clumsy as can be on the ground, right? And they've got this big long beak and a gullet hanging down underneath and they're kind of moving like this on the land, you know? And suddenly they take to flight and they're perfectly aerodynamic. They're streamlined. Their landing gear retracts completely and folds backwards. It's like a astonishing and there they are just cruising effortlessly flying down the ridge line of the cliff until they get hungry and all they do is just tilt a little bit like that and they come over to the sea and they move a few you know a few hundred yards out to sea and they take all the height that they gain from flying over the ridge line and they fly over the water and this magnificent creature has eyes that are, I forget how many times better than ours, but a lot. And what can they do? They can see fish in the water when they're flying at 30 miles an hour from way up high. And they're a little hungry. And so they go to In-N-Out Burger and they just look down, they see a fish. And what do they do? They tuck in their wings and they point straight down and it's crazy to watch you go things gonna die it's gonna kill itself man they just dive bomb and they pull their wings back straight into the water and they swoop back up and flap their wings and in their mouth is a big honking fish that they go like this on and it goes right into the gullet and they just go right back to perfectly aerodynamically flying again wow the marvels of god's creation and that's just one of them.
right? Uh, I then drive home from taking a walk on the beach with my wife, and I see the hawks flying over the hills, and they're doing the same thing. Only they don't hit the winds coming off the cliff because there aren't any. They have a really cool apparatus. They have a thermal sensor. They're able to find and measure hot air that rises up from the earth. And just like your phone has a little Wi-Fi sensor, they've got a thermal sensor. And they can fly around and find the hot spot and just go... And they fly around in circles without ever even flapping their wings. And when they get hungry, they just go, I feel like a snack. And they see a little gerbil walking around. (laughs) And they just do the same thing. Scoop down and pick it up. Go back out for a little more fun flying. Just amazing to watch, right? Uh, uh, Then I come home and I turn on the TV and I saw this documentary on elephants. And these elephants travel in herds. They're giant mammoth beasts, right? And they have this huge six-foot trunk that is multi-diverse. It can do all kinds of things. And uh, there's a drought in Africa. Hasn't rained in a long time. And... Elephants need a lot of water. So what do they do? They take that six-foot trunk and they put it straight up like a little snorkel and go like this. And they walk around like this. The whole herd, every single one of them. And what are they doing? They can smell water from two miles away. How does this happen? Then I come outside because I got yard work to do. And I got my son's dog over, little Zero. And uh, I'm in the backyard and I'm trimming the vines. And as I'm trimming the vines, I see these bumblebees. And they're buzzing around. And they got hair all over them. And they're just going into the nectar of the flowers, getting intoxicated on the nectar. And I look close, and they're not even thinking about me, man. They're so into the flower, they don't even know I'm there. And I see that all this nectar is just sticking to them all over their body. It's on their heads, it's on their butts, it's on their bodies, it's it's torso, everything, right? And they get so intoxicated, so covered with it, what do they do? They fly back to the hive to make honey that I can put in my tea. Just amazing. And as I'm looking at the, bee, the bumblebee in getting all the nectar on it, uh, my son's dog, Zero, just wants to be with me wherever I am. And so he comes over and lays his big golden retriever head right on my leg as I'm pulling weeds or as I'm looking at the thing. He just wants to be with me. And if I go for a walk, he wants to be with me. Man's best friend. Where did that come from? Well... All of those instincts and all of those animals and all of those creatures are the bara that God spoke into them out of nothing, giving them the instinct to do all of those things all to the glory of God. Wow. Amazing to ponder. And there are marvelous mysteries in the animal kingdom. I've revealed the last few weeks what a nerd I am. I was studying giant pandas. 
because that's what everyone does. And <clears throat> giant pandas are, you know what a giant panda is, right? I mean, they're huge. You know how big they get? 330 pounds. They're huge. They're massive, right? Slow moving China, you know, right? All that stuff. Uh, they're just incredible. Um, but here's what's, here's what's so remarkable. Do you know how, how much a giant panda, 330 pound panda, do you know how much a giant panda weighs when it's born? Three and a half ounces. Three and a half ounces. May I remind you, there's 16 ounces in a pound, and a human offspring is eight or nine pounds. Three and a half ounces. It is a one to 900 ratio from birth to adult. One to 900. How does that happen? And if that's not crazy enough, now consider this. What does a giant panda eat? Bamboo. Bamboo and nothing but bamboo. And science knows there is zero food value in bamboo. And so they marvel how this three and a half ounce nothing can turn into a 330 pound mammoth beast eating bamboo. And so science is stuttering, stuttering, studying the gut microbes of a giant panda so we can learn how they can get nutrition out of nothing because we think we might be able to you know, do amazing things. Anyway, uh, crazy stuff, right? Crazy stuff. Um, and it goes on and on. It goes on and on. Humpback whales. Mammoth. I mean, huge, right? From here to the doors and past, right? Massive. Do you know they travel over 12,000 miles underwater from all the way up into Alaska? Just crazy. How do they do that, right? Uh, every year they go from Alaska to Hawaii. They go and they feed in the cold waters of Alaska. And then after they get really full, they come all the way back and they breed in the warm waters of Hawaii. It's like a 12,000 mile trip to the grocery store underwater. How do they not get lost at sea? They don't have an iPhone. Can I tell you? Bara. God put that in them instinctively. It's not learned. Uh, a classic example of this, and this will be the last one because I could talk about this forever. Uh, the black pole warbler, a little bird. Check this out. Each fall, the black pole warbler flies from Alaska to the Amazon basin in Brazil. That is a 7,000-mile trip and it does it every fall 2,000 miles of this trip from Alaska to the Amazon basin in Brazil 2,000 miles of the 7,000 mile trip is over the oceans they fly for 80 hours at a time that's three and a half days without stopping if they stop they die they're in the water right three and a half days non-stop flight and if that is not miraculous, check this out. They only weigh 16 grams. That's about a half ounce. That's a little tiny weight you put on a freshwater fishing pole. And that little bird that only weighs a half ounce 
flies 7,000 miles from Alaska to Brazil, the Amazon basin, uh, in the winter to get warm because the earth is tilted. <laughs> and if that's not crazy enough, it does it twice a year. It then flies from the Amazon basin in the spring back to Alaska, another 7,000 miles, to nest and to lay eggs. And if that's not crazy enough, it goes an entirely different route. Crazy. Instead of flying over the ocean, it flies over the landmass a different way on the way back home. If that were not crazy enough, it then lays some eggs. And those eggs hatch, and guess what they do? They fly all the way from Alaska back to the exact same Amazon basin, and they've never been there before. How do they do that? Bara, this little half-ounce creature going against the winds and the seas and everything else. Just astonishing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, right? Just amazing. Now we see this phrase, according to their kind. All of them reproducing according to their kind. We have sea creatures reproducing according to their kind. Birds reproducing according to their kind. Cattle, insects, beasts of the field. Every living creature reproducing according to its kind. What does that mean? It means that they reproduce in their own species. They never go outside of that species. This means that rabbits will only produce... You guys are smart, biology majors. <laughs> rabbits will only produce rabbits, right? Horses will only produce horses. Cows will only produce cows. Rhinos will only, only produce rhinos, right? It's the way it is. Uh, you can crossbreed a species within a species. You can crossbreed a pit bull and a poodle, and you will get a patoodle. Uh, <laughs> but you cannot crossbreed a pit bull, and a cat. It'll never happen. And even if you could, when you call it, it wouldn't come. So, uh, <laughs> um, Why? Because God said, according to its kind. Just like he said of the plant of the botany life, each of it produces according to its kind. And we looked at that in detail last week. Billions of seeds being planted by farmers every single year. If evolution was ever going to be seen, it would be seen in botany because the cycle happens so quickly, right? But it never happens. We always get exactly what we plant with no deviation. And plant seeds from 23,000 years ago were the same as they are now. We saw last week in detail, right? And now we see the animal kingdom the same time, same, the same thing. Very interesting, by the way. He says every animal will reproduce according to its kind. And that is the way it's been, and it has never deviated from that. Interesting, again, by design, 10 times in Genesis 1, 10 times God said, according to its kind. A God who never wastes words and never repeats things unnecessarily. Ten in the Bible represents the law. The completeness of order. And the completeness of order, God said, according to 
to its kind, every species, botany and uh, animal kingdom will reproduce according to its kind. It's almost as if God might have known that some crazy culture would come along and tell you that you came out of ooze somewhere. And God says, the Decalogue, it will always be 10, the law, the order of completeness. It'll always be according to its kind. By the way, the handiwork of God, you know what else is 10 times in Genesis 1 besides according to its kind? And God said 10 times. The design of God and his word. Do you think Moses had any idea when he wrote Genesis 1 that according to its kind was 10 times and God said was 10 times? Not a chance. This is, this is God's word designed outside of man, uh, just the way, uh, the way he is. Uh, it's almost as if God knew that godless evolutionists would try to teach you that through natural selection, a slug can become a fish, and a fish can become a bird, and ultimately that would become you. Uh, and after billions and billions of years, it would happen. What a bunch of hogwash. Uh, uh, there is evolution, no question about it, but there is not cross-species evolution, right? Uh, evolution teaches this, that after billions and billions of years, a fish will somehow finally recognize that flying beats the heck out of swimming. And so by will and desire alone, that fish will then say, I want to fly, and he'll start turning his fins into bigger fins so he, he can ultimately get feathers and one day fly. And through natural selection, he'll pick the good-looking Mrs. Fish that has bigger fins so that she can one day fly too, and that they'll, through natural selection, one day fly. Are we thinking? Are we even thinking? Um, it's nonsense, right? Uh, a fish will never change a species to a bird. Uh, now, evolutionists are really trying hard to get us to believe this. And one of the things they like to, they like to use to prove uh, evolution are what are called trilobites. Trilobites are a group of extinct marine anthropods. They had a little exoskeleton. They were little creatures about you know, between this and this big, the variants. And they like to use them because there's a lot of differences in the fossil records about these trilobites. Uh, here are six different pictures of fossil records that we have of trilobites. And again, evolutionists like to use them for that reason because they show changes. Uh, but... Uh, all of these, you can see, they're definitely changing. Look at that one in the middle on the bottom. Definitely different than, you know, a little bit of change to it. No doubt about it. But let me ask any of you. Are any of those changing species? Or are they still trilobites? Uh, and we don't have any fossil records of one species going to another species. Yes, things do evolve in a micro level, but not at a macro level. Uh, I call it adaptation. We know, for example, we can take a jackrabbit from the desert where it's blistering hot at 110 degrees, right? And we can take that jackrabbit, put it in a cage, and bring it up to the mountains. And in one season... 
that jackrabbit's fur will change radically and get super thick for winter in one season. Not in millions of years, in one season. That is adaptation. And it speaks to the marvelous glory of God's design in creation. If I go live in the colder weather, I'd probably put on a few pounds to insulate myself a little bit, right? Uh, that's adaptation. And uh, uh, this is God's design. Uh, but I want you to know, adaptation is a long, long, long way from demonstrating one species becoming a different species. If we take an honest look at the fossil record, the fossil record reveals that all species reproduce according to their kind. That's what the fossil record reveals. It does not support the idea of one species changing to a different species. If it did, and it happened over billions of years, what we would have would be hundreds of thousands of fossils gradually changing from one species to another. In other words, we would have hundreds of thousands of fossils of slugs gradually sprouting legs and a tail to become a lizard. And we would have tons of fossils with little nubs getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the tail getting bigger and now little fingers or, or claws starting to grow. And that would be uh, the fossil record. What do we have? The exact opposite. We have no uh, transitional fossils like that. We have millions of fossils, all of all kinds of animals in the same sediment layers. So we have fish, slugs, and lizards all in the same sediment layer with no transitions on the way, right? Uh, and so the fossil record uh, really shows that God's word, each species uh, reproduces according to its kind. Um, let me leave you with this. Darwin himself found the fossil record, and I use his words, to be a serious objection to the theory of evolution. In other words, he knew that the fossil record did not support his theory of evolution. He knew that. He knew the fossil record was actually antithesis to his theory. And so he had to deal with it. He wrote about it. And so I have a quote for you from him, from his book, The Origin of the Species. This is the sixth edition. Uh, uh, this is a chapter six. Here's what he writes. But as by this theory, that is the theory of evolution, innumerable transitional forms must have existed. In order for the theory of evolution to be true, there had to be innumerable transitional forms existing. Little slugs starting to sprout legs and millions of those in the fossil record had to exist. Why then do we not find them embedded in the countless numbers of fossils uh, in the crust of the earth? That's the question he's asking. Right? Why doesn't the fossil record support my theory of evolution? He goes on. It will be more convenient to discuss this question in the chapter on the imperfection of the geological record. And I will here only state that I believe 
The answer mainly lies in the record being incomparably less perfect than is generally supposed. Uh, let me paraphrase all that to make it easily digestible. If the fossil record was right, excuse me, if, if my theory of evolution is right, Darwin says, you would find a fossil record that showed it with millions of fossils, and it doesn't. Why would that be? Well, Darwin says it's only because we don't have a very good record of fossils yet. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm going to give you the quote from chapter 10 where he addresses what he said he would address. Here it is. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. In other words, geology does not even remotely show evolution to be true. The fossil record doesn't even remotely show it. Does not reveal the word any is an important word. I should have made it red or something. Does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. Rest of it. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. Once again, Darwin saying, hey, I know that this theory seems whacked based on the geological record, but I think in time the geological record will be uncovered more and it will prove my theory. Right now it doesn't support it at all. Based off his own quotes, based off Darwin's own quotes, I personally believe, if he is true to his word, that if Darwin was alive today, he would not write The Origin of the Species. Based off his own quote, why? Here's why. Because Darwin lived 150 years ago when he wrote that book. And the fossil record has grown exponentially just in the last 100 years. We have millions of more fossils than we did just 100 years ago, much less 150. And the reason is because countries like China, Mongolia, and Argentina and all have all opened their borders up to uh, paleontology, uh, and uh, we have just millions of fossils now. But you know what the fossil record has shown? It hasn't shown what Dar Darwin thought it would. It hasn't shown any cross-species. No, not one. Last thing I'll leave you, and you'll be out in two minutes. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Furthermore, in 1831, 1831, when 22-year-old Darwin was starting his work on natural selection, very little was known about a single cell. You see, Darwin theorized that these single cells, these protoplasms, would morph and change. And nothing was known about a single cell. He thought it was just a simple protoplasm. What we have learned, it is anything but a simple protoplasm. Today we know that a single human cell, everybody take a look at your hand for a moment. A single human skin cell, for example, just a skin cell, is far more complex 
than the space shuttle. One single skin cell, far more complex than the space shuttle, far more complex than a nuclear submarine. One skin cell. A single cell has billions, with a B, of biochemical mo molecules inside it doing incredibly intelligent things. Here's a picture of one here, a single cell. The DNA of a single cell contains so much information that if it were put into a Microsoft Word document, and you only used the very first letter of every one of its words, you would have 1.5 million pages of text from just one cell. Now, can I boggle your mind? That's just from one cell. You would have 1.5 million pages of text if you only use the first letter of every part of the code. Just one letter. 1.5 million pages of text. One cell. And your body has 37.2 trillion cells. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every one of those cells programmed with so much code, it cannot change. And it will not turn into anything else. And it is a brilliant, brilliant design. One last Bible verse for you on your screens. First Timothy. Look what Paul says to Timothy. Let me hear you read this. Read it out loud with me. Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust and avoid profane and vain babblings and the oppositions of science falsely so-called which some professing have erred concerning the truth. The professions of science falsely so-called, God's word says. Why? Because the definition of science is the study of fact. And all the facts are worthy of study. They will all reveal the glory of God. But the study of falsely called science, falsely so-called, has led many astray. At the time Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species, do you know that the number one medical practice of his day was bloodletting? And it had been for centuries. And they were convinced that was good science. It did not discontinue until 1923. Bloodletting. Interesting. Their science wasn't so good, was it? Uh, doctors at that time when Darwin was alive would not wash their hands between patients or between surgeries, or between gynecological visits, or between, they want to even sterilize their surgical instruments. And that was science. And they believed it to be absolute. Science has changed a ton in just the last hundred years. And if we learn anything from history, here's what we know. It'll change even more in the next 75. 
God's word hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. Genesis hasn't changed in over 3,500 years. And the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that full well. You decide where you're going to put your faith. You decide what you're going to believe. As for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. Shall we stand together? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.